Thank you for having us. You're always a very gracious host. I've been here before and some of you I've met before, so it's nice to see you again and some new faces also, which is refreshing. I know my talk was advertised a little bit to be dealing with the subject of myth and meaning. I don't know how many of you are aware of that. If you're not, I could talk about something else, but <laughs> if, <laughs> if you came for that, then I could talk about that too, although I, I just spoke about that in Nashville, which is interesting, and I try not to repeat myself, but some things are worth repeating. It never comes out the same the second time. Myth and meaning. Everyone knows, of course, that myth has meaning. In our particular tradition, we are really quite centered on and absorbed in a particular myth or story, and that is the story of Radha and Krishna, a story that so captivated the heart of Sri Chaitanya, about which he and his associates, this is 15th, 16th century India, at that time in India there was a great kind of revolution, spiritual revolution of sorts. It was a revolution against the spiritual and religious thinking of the time that was largely dominated by the notion that in order to commune in the fullest sense with God, <coughs> humans first had to take birth in a particular family, in a Brahmin family, which was the kind of the uh, priestly and intellectual class. And from there, one would have to take sannyas, means to renounce the world, become a mendicant, become a renunciate. And then, having done so, and combining that with introspection and so forth, one could attain Brahman, one could have union with the Absolute. But the people, and some great religious uh, thinkers and spiritual uh, experiencers, took exception with the sense that God was closer to humanity 
than that and more accessible, more readily accessible. So this was kind of, like I say, a, a revolution of devotion. And it was a time when many persons, among them Sri Chaitanya One and perhaps the most prominent, advocated devotion through simple practices like singing the name of God and, and so forth. Kabir and Nanak and uh, Tukram, and these are some of them well-known people in Sri Chaitanya. His idea went very, well, it went very high, and um, appropriately so because of his preoccupation with the story of Radha and Krishna. So let me talk a little bit about that and what I mean by going high. I mean to say there may be different levels of penetration into transcendence, different a gradation of embrace of the Absolute, even on the part of the liberated, the enlightened. There may be distinction and variety within that realm that doesn't compromise unity, as for example in our present plane of human experience, variety often compromises unity. I'll get to that. That's worth underscoring. But the story of Radha and Krishna that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev was preoccupied with and that he celebrated in song and dance and music, art, drama, poetry, literature, was a huge contribution to the religious world. Rich body of texts in Bengali and in, uh, in Sanskrit. And all of this was derived from the principal text called the Bhagavad Purana. It's 18,000 uh, Sanskrit verses of uh, mostly poetry. and. Even the, the Muslims, who were at that time ruling over India, occupying India, uh, didn't like the Hindus' ideas that much. <laughs> Let's put it like that. So there was a little bit of friction. But when it came to the story of Radha and Krishna in the Bhagavad Purana, they, were, they themselves were also charmed. And a considerable evidence of that, much of which is found in, in art, depicting the Leela, the divine play of Radha and Krishna with the signatures in Arabic of the artisans. So it's a very powerful story, the story of Radha and Krishna. And as I say, it's found principally in the, in the Bhagavat Purana. And from there, Sri Chaitanya drew so much meaning and explained, if you will, the significance of that story, that myth. In, as I say, in, he and his followers in volumes of literature and poetry, subsequent poetry, and, and so on and so forth. And this is the large uh, body of, um, of literature and so on and so forth that we partake in in our particular tradition, following in his footsteps. It's common understanding these days, especially through the contribution of people like Joseph Campbell, whose life was so much centered on on myth and trying to bring to us the fact that it has meaning and. So it's a common understanding, I think, amongst thoughtful people that the stories, if you will, of different cultures, they tell something about the psychology of the people, about the meta-narrative of the people, the spirituality of the people. And more than that, as Campbell rightly understood, they all speak as diverse as they are about something that we all have in common, something that in one sense is bigger than all of the stories themselves. And that is the very ground of being on which we exist. They all point to, as Campbell rightly concluded, 
what has been termed the perennial philosophy. It's an old term. Huxley popularized it with his book, The Perennial Philosophy, years ago. And um, interestingly enough, the uh, Hindu mythology all points to something called ultimately Sanatan Dharma, the kind of the eternal nature of, of being. And over time, the, in many circles, the term, the perennial philosophy, became synonymous with Sanatan Dharma. So I mean to say by this that amongst myths and stories of cultures and so forth, this Indian mythology, and particularly the story of Radha and Krishna, which is the heart of the whole thing, is very profound, perhaps more than any other particular cultural myth. It speaks most directly about that which we all have in common, while others may do to some extent or, or indirectly. But as the heart of the whole affair of Indian mythology, the story of Radha and Krishna, it does a wonderful thing because it seeks to well, it, if you study it carefully, you see that it causes us to consider whether the common ground that all cultures, mythology and whatnot, is really pointing to, the common ground of being that we all are rooted in, consciousness. You know, our material existence is, it doesn't really have any roots. Our sense of self, based on physical and psychic dimensions of our present experience, it, it doesn't really have any roots. Therefore, we say in common English parlance, it's uh, here today and gone tomorrow. But we are rooted in something. In one sense, we are rooted in experiencing. And I like to say that of all the experiences that we have in human life, the most profound experience is the fact that we experience. Matter, on the other hand, is that which is experienced. So there's a big difference between being only experienced and experiencing. And we, we are big in that sense. What we are, I mean to say, as consciousness, in terms of what we are rooted in, in the ground of our being, this is is here today and it will be here tomorrow and the next day and that will never go away. But that identity that arises out of the material identification that we're presently preoccupied with, you can't take that to the bank. You can't count on that. You can count on it, I should say. You can count on the fact that it won't endure and that you won't find enduring happiness in relation to it unless you learn the art of applying it in such a way that it fosters acquaintance with that which we're actually rooted in, that which we are of the nature of consciousness, experiencers, rather than matter. After all, how much would matter matter if there was no one to experience it? So we're important in a sense, but we're also kind of, you might want to think, well, Sounds good, we're really important, we're a big thing, but we sure are confused. <laughs> How could such a big thing get so confused? This is addressed, actually, in this story of Radha and Krishna. The implications of the story address this interesting contradiction, 
I mean, we're infinitely more important than any manifestation of matter that's here today and gone tomorrow and can only come into manifestation by the influence of ourselves, of consciousness. But at the same time, look at our predicament. We are overwhelmed by the influence of matter so much that we live our lives as if we were matter and defending or protecting our material sense of being is the most important thing that we can do. That's pretty confused, if you think about it. Pretty confused condition to be in. I'll give an example before here that television requires a viewer in order for it to really have any meaning. Someone has to turn it on and view it. So, again, this is to illustrate the point, consciousness is more important than matter. An analogy. But in the analogy, if we take it further, we come also to this dilemma that I'm bringing out. And what is that? That you can turn on the TV and it can have a life in relation to the viewer, but it can take over the viewer's life also. You see that that happens and he becomes a couch potato. You can't move him on Sunday from the football game or something. And he's lost his life to the TV. Although he has given life to the TV, the TV's taken over his life. So although we've given life, we give life to the world, so to speak, of matter and animate it by lending ourselves to material things, they take on a life. But then we miss the fact that we are the life, we are animating it. Why, for example, is my house important to me? Why is my car important to me? Why, if I hear that your car got a flat tire, it really doesn't bother me as much as if my car got a flat tire? The reason is because I'm in the car. How am I in the car? By two letters. Small letters, but it's a big, yeah, big problem. My. M-Y. In other words, consciousness has the power to extend itself into material objects. And it does so by this sense of, of my. There's a sense of I, and that sense of I is expanded by my. And really, our sense of I is dependent on our sense of my. What I think is mine is what I am all about. My attachments, materially speaking, are me. Do you understand? I like Winston-Salem. This is my town. So that tells us much about you. And this is, these are my friends. This is my school. This is my kind of car. I mean, this is not real esoteric. The advertisers have figured this out. What, who are you? You drive a Volvo, right? They know the mentality, they've advertised it accordingly and so forth. It's common, uh, it's obvious. Our sense of I, materially speaking, is derived from our sense of my, of what is mine. And the fact of the matter is, nothing is ours. <laughs> so that's why that sense of I, derived from my, is here today and gone tomorrow. We should not invest in that. <laughs> that's a folly. And this is just uh, common sense. We think sometimes, uh, let's say, about myth. The word myth, among other things, perhaps the most prominent thing that it brings to the common person's mind is myth, something untrue. A falsity, right? 
So we're here talking about the idea that myth has meaning, so it can't be that false, perhaps. Maybe it can draw allegorical meaning into our life, to give our lives more meaning and so forth. But what is our life? Again, we're talking a little bit about that, materially speaking. What are we, or what do we think we are? How confused we are. How we've been influenced by matter, even though we've turned on, so to speak, the whole show. How that show has taken over our life, and we're living as if... Oh, well, we're living as if if we don't eat, we'll die. If we don't, we're struggling to endure, to exist in an enduring way because it appears to us that our existence is threatened. And the fact is, it is. Our sense of existence derived from our my and our material attachments, this is, it's not only threatened, <laughs> it's condemned. It's, it's for sure that it won't endure. So another way of talking about this life, this sense of identity, is to look at it like we have senses. We have eyes to see forms. We have ears to hear sounds. We have a tactile sense to touch. And, and by all of this, to get some impression of being what it is. So we get a message through our ear in contact with the sound and with our eye in contact with the form and so forth. And this message is relayed to the central computer of our, of our mind. And the mind, in a very basic sense, does two things. It says, Sankalpa Bikalpa. It says, I like that, I don't like that. That feeling, that sensation, that sound, that form, that, that scent. I like this, but I don't like that. What's happening when we do that? We're saying, that's cold, that's hot. That's good, that's bad. That's happy, that's sad. We're creating a whole identity in the world of our mind. After all, what's good for you, what's bad for you, that defines you, doesn't it? How will I know you? Well, she likes this. Well, she doesn't like that. This makes her happy, this makes her sad, and so on. So, what's the problem with this? The problem with this is we all have a different mind. We all have a different set of senses. We all have different likes, dislikes. What's happy for you may be sad for me. What's cold for you may be hot for me. So by living in a not-so-sovereign domain of our mind, we're inevitably distancing ourselves from one another, and the unity that we sense is at the heart of, of reality. And living in this world of the mind, I mean, is it hot or is it cold? All this is just relative to your particular perception of your mind, which could change. Your senses change with age and time, in the least. And so they give a different message, and the mind changes, and you cannot get your feet on the ground in the world of the mind. And neither, as I'm saying, is it real. So if you want to talk about a myth in the sense of something that's not real, it really applies to the world of our mind. This is about as false as it can get. And a story that has the power to take us out of that small world of the mind, how much truer, how much more real, then, is that in the mythic world of our mind? It's so even illogical, the world of our mind, in which we feel 
we kind of insist, either directly or indirectly, knowingly or unknowingly, that everyone should be comfortable in my mind, <laughs> in the way that I see things, even though I'm not comfortable there. I'm not fully comfortable, but I more or less insist that everyone else should agree with me. <laughs> it's ludicrous. This is what we call reality, because we're investing so much time and energy in. There's a myth. And that story, then, that can dethrone the emperor of the mind, it's so oppressive, too. It's not even friendly to us. Are the senses friendly to us? When one sense dictates to go in one direction and the other sense dictates to go in, a, in the opposite? When the stomach dictates that I'm hungry, I should eat, and we do, and the stomach says, enough, but the tongue says, more? This is happening to us all the time. Have you ever thought that a desire that surfaces in the mind based on sensual input, thought about it for a moment with your intellect and decided, that's not good for me to do. That won't be in my interest. Have you ever thought like that, but then done it anyway? Have you ever done otherwise? Have you ever even listened to that voice that says it's not good for you? Of course, we do sometimes, but less often. So even with our intelligence, we can know the, these masters, if you will, of senses and mind are cruel. They're torturing us. They're oppressive. They embarrass us. They lead us to a very unbecoming life. Not even a rational life. Not even a reasonable life. What to speak of a, a happy life. What to speak of a life of love. Reason-ruled life may be better than a mentally and sensually ruled. That is to say, as long as reason is not co-opted by the mind and the senses to facilitate their bidding. Do you follow what I'm saying? If you reason only how to better indulge, you could not have reasoned worse. You could not have abused intellect in a worse way. You could not be a bigger beast. We are sometimes said to be distinguished from the animal kingdom because of the power of reasoning. But if we use it merely to indulge, then we are more ferocious beasts than the wild tiger, more dangerous, dangerous to ourselves, dangerous to others, dangerous to the world. If, on the other hand, we can use reason not to find the best way to indulge or to facilitate indulgence, but to love, then we are moving in the right direction. And we should know that love is the opposite of indulgence. In the very least, in a very basic sense, love is about giving, not about taking. As much as we are self-indulgent, as much as we cannot love. And that means to tell us also, as much as we are absorbed in a material sense of identity, and therefore, out of the necessity of that identity, we're on the take and exploiting and so forth, because we think we need to take to live, to preserve my sense of identity, then it's a folly to speak of love. We should use reason to think how to love 
Now that doesn't mean that by reason we can love. Love is not a rational exercise. It's not irrational. But the actual act of love is transrational. It picks up where reasoning leaves off and it can take us ultimately where we really sense in human life we want to go. We're looking only in, in the wrong place. I mean, I'm saying we're living for love. This story of Radha and Krishna is a, is a love affair, actually. It's a romantic affair between Radha and Krishna. And it says to us something very interesting. It says to us that not only all the things that I'm saying to you about the predicament of material existence and about how to bring an end to it, but more, in the context of bringing an end to that false identity, how to awaken to and experience an identity that is enduring, an identity that is loving rather than taking and exploiting. Let's talk a minute about that, what I mean by that. We're all familiar with the term ego, right? So, sometimes it's said that you should kill your ego. Your ego's a problem, so you should kill it. And there's some truth to that. But a thoughtful person will ask, well, who's going to do it? <laughs> I must have an ego. I must have an identity. What I'm saying is that ego means identity. We have an identity. We've already talked about what it is, how it's formed through the mind and senses and, and so forth. That identity is false. But it can only be done away with. Somebody has to do away with it. So that's us. In other words, we have an identity. There is an ego. There is an identity that we have. And therefore, the culmination of spiritual life is not the movement from false sense of differentiation and variety born in the mind to the ground of being that we all have in common. All the myths speak to us of an underlying ground of being that we have in common. We should go there. But when we, upon arriving there, is there anything else to do? Is there any progress from there? Is there any growth from there? Or has it become a static enlightenment that constitutes the mere cessation of meaningless activity that we had been preoccupied with? So Sri Chaitanya, via the myth, if you will, the story of Radha and Krishna reasoned well and spiritually, that rather than this underlying oneness of consciousness that we all have in common, that we are rooted in, rather than it being the culmination of spiritual experience to commune with that, it's the lowest common denominator. Not the highest, but the lowest common denominator. It's the basis of the spiritual identity. To arrive at your spiritual identity requires doing away with the false identity. There's much work to be done in that, but arriving at that point, you've kind of cleared the negative. Now there's so much positive. Just like, let's say, you know, you, you're living in, a, in an oppressive regime. One of my students got political asylum from Serbia recently the United States, and there may probably be a more oppressive regime. So to, to come out of that, let us say, and come to the free land, if you will, of corporate America, <laughs> just using an example, then, you know, you have to start your life here. You got here, 
you know, the immigrants came, you know, our families and so forth, on the boat, arrived here from Europe, from Africa, from Asia, or wherever, to find a new life. So just getting here, is, that's just the beginning. Then from there, like I said earlier, there's reason to believe that transcendence, there's variety there. And that variety of expression does not compromise the unity, like it does here. Because the variety here is really false. It's not hot or cold. It's something else altogether. The nature of being. It's consciousness. Now go inside consciousness deeply. What possibilities lie there? Is it simply a static stillness? End to the torturous motion perpetuated by the mind and senses? A constant enduring relief? Or is it celebratory and have movement of its own? So the story of Radha and Krishna, it spoke to Chaitanya Dev in this way. The Bhagavat, this great poetic text, 18,000 verses, spoke to him when he read it in this way, that it speaks of growth within transcendence. It's a doctrine of love rather than merely a doctrine of knowledge. Knowledge is the absence of ignorance in one sense, the eradication of ignorance. In love, there's, there is knowledge, but there's, oh, it's just, you know, if you love, then you know what to do. Love is the highest knowledge. Therefore, it's said, if you love someone, then they'll tell you all their secrets. So to become a lover is to know comprehensively. This story of Radha and Krishna, it speaks to us about that. To become a lover, it portrays the love of Radha for Krishna. And implores us to follow that kind of example that she sets and how by such all the secrets of life, all those secrets can be revealed. Not only can be revealed, but you can enter and participate in those secrets, in the secret love life of God. It's a very extraordinary idea. It means to say that you can find unconditional love. And that's a popular term. But if we plumb the depths of that, this is where we arrive, really, in this story of Radha and Krishna. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, if we want to love, as I said, we have to stop doing what's not love. Love is about giving, so we have to give up our life of taking. And to do that, we really have to learn to transcend the mind and the senses. That's what yoga and spiritual discipline is really about. It's a system for that. Not just you think your way there, or you know, imagine your way there by saying some of the things that the Swami said, and you know, now it's yours because you can repeat it. Or you have to live that. Love is based in sacrifice. So there's going to be some some sacrifice. Some effort will have to be made. Just like in art and music, you hear a beautiful song or see a beautiful picture, and you think, "Why? Well, I wish I had the talent to do that, or I had the natural ability to do that." But if you ask an artist or a musician, they tell you there's math beneath that. There's Vedanta to the bhakti. There's good reasoning. That reasoning has to separate you from the call of the wild, of the mind and the senses. That reasoning has to, I say, separate you from a life of indulgence and direct you in the, systematically in the direction of loving, giving, taking, transcending mind and senses and so forth. So love, unconditional love, the first step is moving away from what's not love. We do that, we go a long distance. I kind of think we go halfway, in a sense. We go halfway. We come to the ground of being. 
what I am, independent of mind and body. But now the other half is to be traversed as well. And what does that involve? Well, if love is to be unconditional, without limit, then one thing is that we have to be willing to give unlimitedly. But we can only do that if we can find an object that can take unlimitedly. So if we think, yes, to give without reservation, and that means transcending the limits of mind and senses, where will I give? Will I give to another individual unit of consciousness that's bewildered by material attachment? Will it have unlimited capacity to reciprocate? No. Will anything in the natural world, the tear day and gone tomorrow, have that capacity? No. So then rather than looking down, so to speak, we can look up. What about God? Oh, that might be a good idea. We look in the direction of God. So God is, is the reservoir of, let's say, consciousness. And great power to accept love compared to any of us, but the general idea of God is reverential. You know, in the Greeks, there's a difference between eros and agape, and the two don't really come too close together. There is a world between lust and love, between taking and giving. But when we come to loving God reverentially, there's a problem in terms of the pursuit of unconditional love. And the problem is that reverential love is not the only kind of love, neither is it necessarily the most complete form of love. Because in reverential love, as much as love is about union, reverential love, as wonderful as it is, creates a distance also. I'm not, but if I was to say to you and, I can, and convince you that I was God, you'd say, oh my God. And then you would want to sit back a little bit. Oh my God. This is the point I'm making. So, what to do now? We've gone all the way to God. And we haven't found the perfect object of love to repose our loving propensity in such that it will be unconditional. This is Krishna then. This is the idea of Krishna. Enter the story of Radha and Krishna. Here we find a conception of God that transcends reverential love. This Krishna is envisioned by the mystics in a union of love that is so intense, so intimate, that it causes the Absolute to take on an apparent finite appearance. You understand what I'm saying? So that the unity is possible. In other words, if I'm a finite soul and I approach the infinite, I'm going to say, oh my God, I mean, it's like the infinite. To in order to have intimacy with that Absolute, it has to take on a finite appearance. It won't be finite. This is the idea of Krishna, Radha and Krishna. And Sri Chaitanya loved Krishna with the passion of Radha. It means he fell in love with the Absolute. He didn't just want to know it, revere it. He wanted to come as close to it as possible. But he didn't want to come close to it in such a way that he would disappear and everybody else would and there would just be me. Or just consciousness, alone, forever, shanti, shanti, shanti. He concluded, that's only the beginning of the whole affair. Let's go on from here. From there to reverential love and within the realm of consciousness. And from there beyond to love and intimacy. He loved the absolute like a young girl loves a young boy. Nothing can get in the way of that. Try as you may. 
reason with them. It will only inflame the affair that much more. With this kind of passion. So what is this story of Radha and Krishna then? I mean, it's a, story, it's a love story. But what was its power? It was spoken originally by a boy, a 16-year-old boy. The Raj, the king, the emperor really of India, was cursed to die in seven days. He went to the bank of the Ganges, sacred river in India, and if the king goes to the bank of the Ganges, it's a big thing. The emperor went to the river. He'd been cursed to die. He had a question, two questions, and he wanted these questions answered. He wanted to know, what's the best way in which I can spend my human energy in general? And what's the best way to do that in particular at the time of death? And out of the woodwork came so many people with so many suggestions. You can do like this, you can do like this, you should do like that. Just like in our mind, so many thoughts come. What should we do? What's the best way to conduct ourselves? So like that, so many thoughts came, so many suggestions came. And then somebody came who was different than everybody. A young boy, naked. And he sang like this. Govinda Jaya Jaya Gopala Jaya Jaya Govinda Jaya Jaya Gopala Jaya Jaya Radha Ramana Hari Govinda Jaya Jaya Govinda Jaya Jaya Gopala Jaya Jaya Radha Ramana Hari Govinda Jaya Jaya What is he talking about? Children were making fun of him. He seemed to be oblivious to the external world. But some wise people in the assembly could understand. We should listen to this boy. He's traveling, walking naked. He's oblivious to the fact that he's naked. He sees no distinction between man or woman. And I don't mean in a politically correct way. He really saw absolutely no distinction because he saw man, woman, it's just a different dress. That's all. What we all are, that's something else. And we are all consciousness in a very basic sense. We're all rooted in the same thing. We all have much more in common than difference from one another. He saw like this. So thoughtful people could understand. They gave him the seat. Let him see. He can answer the king's question. Why could he answer? Because they could understand. What could they understand? He already solved the problem. What is the problem? Life is about death. That's what it's about. Life is about death. All is well that ends well. How you die, <laughs> that's about how you lived. Death is the issue at hand. How to deal with that? Death is the problem. Why is it a problem? It's really not a problem. But why do we perceive it as a problem? Because our identity, based on my those two letters, that small word, makes death a problem because what's mine is, is being taken away from me. The environment is, is saying to you, no, it's not yours and, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. I've been showing to you all along with every rising and setting of the sun, but now in one very profound way I'm going to make the final statement to you. And if you haven't learned it, 
death is a problem. And if you don't listen at that time, and who listens? Still they're trying to hang on, preserve it through their offspring, the extension of their own self. My son will live the dream of my mind. My daughter will live the dream of my mind. And I'll be able to do it in that way. You know. Hmm. Yes, you can live forever. You can be happy and you can love, but not not in the identity created by the mind so they could understand this Sukadev, this boy. He had understood the problem. Because why? That's the whole idea. He's traveling naked. Not that you just take off your clothes and walk with the Thor today and you've answered the question, but he had arrived at that through hearing the story of Radha and Krishna. What kind of story is that? Then? That's how he arrived at it. That's what he would sing about. So thoughtful people in the assembly could understand, this boy has solved the problem that the king is addressing. What to do at the time of death? In other words, he has stopped dying. How do you stop dying? How do you live, how do you occupy yourself throughout your life such that you will not die? This is the real question. How to stop the dying problem? Well. This is how to stop it. In a very basic sense, you have to get, with the ingress of knowledge, wisdom, I mean, there is detachment. Detachment follows knowledge, like a maidservant. It's a corollary of knowledge. If you've got knowledge, then how much are you attached in the pursuit of enduring happiness to things that don't endure? It doesn't make sense, does it? That's ignorance. So knowledge corresponds with detachment. If we're not attached, then what's the problem with death? Then the problem is solved. Detachment is ignorance. Knowledge is the possession of it, demonstrated by, in a very basic sense, detachment. So they could understand that this boy has solved the problem. Now, let's see how he did it. And he began to speak. He began to tell the story of Radha and Krishna. In the context of that story, it reaches its height in the 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, 33rd chapter of the 10th canto amongst 12 of these Sanskrit, 18,000 Sanskrit poems. And there, he's in the midst of the story of the love life of Krishna and Radha. And there, those milkmaidens, Radha and her associates, they hear the flute sound of Krishna on the full moon night. They hear their name, each one of them, in his flute sound. This is called Diksha. We call it Diksha, spiritual initiation. It comes from the flute sound of Krishna. They heard the sound. It entered their hearts. That means they heard the call of God and they neglected everything. They left everything. There were a thousand and eight reasons why they shouldn't have gone in the middle of the night. They had so many household duties to perform and a young boy was calling them in the middle of the night. It sounds like an ordinary story, but this is the story that that boy was preoccupied with that caused him in the minimal to solve the problem of death and develop the necessary detachment, and in the optimum, it gave him the facility to enter into the love life of Radha and Krishna, to enter into that story 
in perpetuity and into a experience of transcendence where there is variety, where there is lila, where lila is the norm. Lila is movement, motion, action. It's not obligatory, like our movement is obligatory. It's karma. We're obliged to move in a particular way by the force of our, the debt we have incurred by our action. When you take, then you owe. So we have taken, we are indulgers by force of our identification with something needy, this sense of self based on body and mind. We have to take. And since we take, we owe. And so we have to work. That is karma. Now the story of Radha and Krishna. Well, you know, you might say, it's an interesting story, but I mean, just some kid in the forest playing on a flute and, and some milkmaids go and chase after him. I mean, we've got our own stories similar to that with, you know, maybe a rock and roll band or something. A you know, young girl is chasing after the rock star. So, no, this is a different kind of story. Y'all. It's similar, but it's different. It's Leela. It's a depiction of Leela. It's a depiction of life in transcendence. And what we say is spiritual life. You want a spiritual life? Then you know what life is, right? Life is full of, well, the spice of it is variety. Interaction, relationships, and so forth. So to end all that, is that a spiritual life? To end all that, materially speaking, is to end, to stop pursuing what we want in the place that you can't have it. The shadow of it only. It is the shadow of it. Material life is the shadow of the spiritual life. So, what is there in the substance of transcendence? This is Leela. So these stories about Radha and Krishna, the the boy, Sukadeva, the naked boy, while appearing naked as a boy, externally, internally, his Atma, his self, was absorbed in that story. And he was a player in that story. Like one of those milkmaidens. It's a very esoteric idea. So what I mean to say to you here is this, in one sense, the myth, the story of Radha and Krishna, it does two very extraordinary things for us. One, it speaks about the zenith, if you will, the apex of transcendence, beyond knowing that you're consciousness, beyond reverential love, intimacy with Bhagwan, with God. It's a post-liberated reality so high, and at the same time, it comes so close to us in our human condition because it validates the sense that all of us have that life is about loving and about relationship. I mean, that's what we're all in pursuit of. In other words, it's a doctrine of transcendent love, not merely a doctrine of knowledge that ends what's not love and leaves you quiet, alone, home, Oh, but Govinda Jaya Jaya Gopala Jaya is a whole different thing, actually. Om is Krishna, but only in a very basic sense. So this is high kind of theology. It's difficult to talk about what to speak of, comprehend hearing it in a short span like this, but I try my best to say a few words, express my own uh, understanding, realization, and experience of this uh, story of Radha and Krishna, but as I say, our tradition is um, very much absorbed in. Any question? Yes? This is really, it is Hindu, the religion? In a generic sense, yeah, Hinduism is quite um, pluralistic, 
and variegated in expression. So, in a general sense, we would be called a particular sect within Hinduism. Yeah. You like Hinduism? Yeah, me too. How close is it to Buddhism? Buddhism comes out of Hinduism. Buddhism is born out of Hinduism. Buddhism is born out of a misunderstanding of Hinduism, a rejection of a misunderstanding of Hinduism. It's interesting, historically. In other words, just like this is largely a Christian country, and this is really Christian down here compared to California, where I come from, which is okay. But, as we know, there's a lot of misrepresentation, I guess, of Christianity, kind of a real mean-spirited Christianity that's out and about in places. And so you look at that and you think, that I don't want to have anything to do with. But then is that really Christianity? Perhaps not. Some people think it's nearly not Christianity. I don't think it is. Christ was not about being mean and bigoted and extremely sectarian and afraid and making other people afraid and, and so forth and illogical and, uh, and at odds with reason and, uh, and so on. So then you might react to that and try to take the best of that as far as you could understand what it was and then come up with something else. That's kind of what Buddhism is. Because just like Christianity, Hinduism, same thing. You can find it in Buddhism too, for that matter, or in Islam or whatever. There's always going to be a fundamentalist orientation to a tradition that's unbecoming and doesn't really do justice to what it is. In fact, as I would say, it's, it's, it's unbecoming. And so Hinduism, there was a prominent kind of misrepresentation as to what Hinduism was really about. And it was being portrayed as a way in which you could get, you could acquire materially and be happy. You could get material acquisition and increased material happiness. And the Buddha thought there is no happiness in the world of material desire. Trishna, thirst, desire, that's the cause of suffering. No matter how much you quench your thirst, you're going to suffer and be thirsty. So he reasoned, stop desire. It's kind of like the real basis of Buddhism, to stop desire. It grew out of that. And then, of course, it's been developed in Asia in different parts and in different ways and so forth. So there's a lot of similarities in the doctrines. But Buddhism is non-theistic. They also threw God out of the picture. Well, if that's what God's about, I don't have anything to do with God. And it reasoned that, well, I don't see God. I see suffering, and it's caused by desire, so stop desire. I mean, I could go on about that, and I'm not a Buddhist, and now there's reasons for it that I could explain, but that's kind of the birth of, of Buddhism. <coughs> we respect the Buddha as kind of the wisdom incarnation of the Absolute, but we look at Krishna as the heart. We're more attracted to the heart. We think it's more vital. Another question? How does pleasures play a factor, or... How does it affect the senses? How does what affect it? Pleasure. pleasure. How, how does pleasure affect the mind? Yeah. Is it a determining factor in that, in who we are? Well, we're all pleasure seekers. Mm -hmm. So, when we find some relative non-enduring <coughs> pleasure in something, then it causes us to become more attached to that thing. We keep returning there. Even though it doesn't fully satisfy us, we keep returning there. Like in school when we were kids, this was a long time ago, then we would chew gum and then get tired of it and put it underneath the table. And 
And then with nothing better to do, especially listening to the teacher, we, we, we'd take it back and try it again. Prahlad said, material life, what is the pleasure? It's chewing the chewed. Chewing what someone else has already chewed. Just like somebody may be buying their dream house. It's somebody else's nightmare. That's why they're selling it. <laughs> you just, they just want to get out of there. So somebody else has all just already chewed it and spit it out. Now it's become your dream and you also spit it out. So the problem with material pleasure is that it creates a sunk scar, creates a habit, an impression, and a tendency to pursue pleasure in relation to something that's not enduring. And we keep going back there. And habits are difficult to overcome. It causes to subtly kind of confirm that there's a possibility of finding enduring happiness through these non-spiritual endeavors, through just following the dictates of the senses in the mind. It reinforces that illusion. So it's a real problem. I mean, we are pleasure seekers. The self is by nature full of pleasure. It has to be uncovered from the oppression of the mind and the senses. And what we are settling for in the name of pleasure and happiness. We have addictions, we have sanskar, we have a natural leaning towards something. This has been acquired over lifetimes. And it's very much cementing our false belief and faith in the prospect of being happy in the material world. It's like you've come for a full meal and you just keep getting appetizers. And somebody says, it's just coming, the meal's coming, just sit. Meanwhile, you're just getting indigestion. Full meal is not coming here. There is a full meal, though. That's the point. There is a feast. Any other brief comment? So, in your mind, would be best to avoid pleasure, period? To avoid? No, you cannot avoid pleasure. This is I'll tell you what is best. What is best is to learn how to enjoy oneself in the context of pursuing that which is actually meaningful. All of us need some pleasure. Even the Gita says, Yuktaharam viharasya. It says, you need to take a break every now and then. This is what the Bhagavad Gita says. Even in your, your intensity of your practice, you try to go there, you try to go there, you try to... Sometimes you just have to stop and think and relax. And then, then. Gita says that. Even there must be some recreation. So, And we need to pleasure ourselves, if you will, for the sake of sustaining ourselves. You have to eat, and you have to eat palatable things or your mind will be disturbed. So, But not too palatable. That will also disturb your mind. <laughs> uh, then you just live to eat rather than eat to live. So there's scope for pleasure and indulgence and so forth, but all in the context of facilitating my vertical growth. Like there was horizontal growth to life, human life, and there's vertical growth to human life. So horizontal growth involves social, psychological integration, mental and physical health, and so forth. And growth in that regard is, for example, to eat good food, food that's not processed and poisoned and, right? That makes sense. And we should go as far as not having to hurt others in order to maintain ourselves. Like, for example, we, as Hindu, we advocate a vegetarian diet for, for good reason. So, you put some thought into that, into your horizontal growth, in such a way 
that all of that horizontal growth fosters vertical growth. If you want to make a building go very high vertically, then you have to have a horizontal foundation, right? So there's a way in which we can pursue our humanness and human life in this world. I'm not saying you should all become like take off your clothes and go outside and it's all over. You know, you've ended death, now you're just gonna wander everywhere and sing, Go in the Jaya Jaya Gopal. I mean you could come to that. That's good, but it takes some time <laughs> to arrive there. So how how to go about it you know in, in, in a sensible way. Good guidance is required. And good guidance can help us to see how to develop horizontally in such a way that it fosters vertical growth. And Vertical growth means the effacing of the ego, material ego, and the developing of this loving identity in relation to the absolute. And um, that horizontal growth under good guidance can in itself so much foster, if it's done right, foster vertical growth that it becomes associated with vertical growth. We call it Sangha Suda Bhakti. Bhakti by association. By association it becomes bhakti. Just like Let's say I want to make a fire sacrifice, like we do in Hindu temples, a big fire sacrifice. So the fire sacrifice is actually lighting the fire and putting things in the fire. But in order to do it, I need to get things. I need to gather wood and so forth. Gathering wood is not a fire sacrifice. But if I gather wood for a fire sacrifice, then by association, it becomes part of that. Do you understand? So we have to learn how to live our human lives in terms of our human relationships, false and temporary as they may be, there's a way to draw meaning from them, meaningfully have those interactions and so forth in such a way that they foster this vertical growth. It's a great science, great art, the art of yoga. Anything else? I appreciate your time and uh, interest. You're at least 50% of the equation of whatever happened here tonight, which I'm not sure, but I think it was, was interesting to me. So many things I said I've never said before, so I thank you for that. That's because of your interest and earnestness, and um, I'm happy to, uh, to be in your company. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.